time to get debriefed with Micah Hanks from The Debrief. Episode 69 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, live edition. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, where we explore the unexplained and mysterious phenomena that have occurred throughout the state of Michigan and beyond. From UFO sightings to ghostly encounters, we delve deep into the stories, the evidence, and the theories behind these strange events. We are your hosts. I'm Michelle. And I'm Wayne. We are an educator duo that after an encounter with a triangular UFO in 2018 in Michigan, we decided to investigate UFOs and the paranormal. In this podcast, we will be speaking with eyewitnesses, experts, and researchers to uncover the truth about some of the most intriguing cases of paranormal activity in and around Michigan. Our goal is not to convince anyone of the existence of these phenomena, but rather to provide a platform for discussion and exploration. So, buckle up and join us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. On an escalator. All right, everyone. And we are live. Welcome to another edition of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast live show. Today is the 20th of October, 2023, and I am experiencing the pure Michigan at its finest as the lovely fall weather here once again tries to kill me with some kind of a cold virus. So I apologize for my voice sounding Worse than it normally does, but yet we're we're going through with this. The show must go on. So it is an especially good time right now to get settled in with a nice warm cup of Joe on this Friday evening as we get ready to bring on our guest for this episode, Micah Hanks, who is the co-founder, creator, and editor-in-chief of the obscure pro UFO website called The Debrief. Maybe you've heard of it. I don't know. We'll see. But mm-hmm. first, let me bring on my lovely wife and co-host, also known as the bird of prey of the chat. It's Michelle. Hello, everyone. How's everybody doing, Michelle? What yeah. What do we got going on out there? Well, I know I don't have the Michigan crowd that you do, but <clears throat> this is why I'm staying as far away from you as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for those of you listening to this at a later date on your favorite podcasting platform, you can catch this show live and participate in the live chat. We currently stream on YouTube. Uh, We're also back on Twitter or X, whatever it's called at this point, and also our Facebook group. Uh, We do have some of the best live chats on this topic around, so come on in and enjoy the live show. And we will have a question and answer segment after our break with Micah Hanks. If there is something you want to ask him, he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this material. If you are here with us live after the live stream, you guys know that we will be releasing the audio of the show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Radio Public, Google Podcast, Audible, and anywhere else they put podcast on and will let us in the front door, I guess. So, Michelle, what do we got? Well, we've got uh, 
quite a few people in chat that we need to make sure that okay. we say hello to. Let's see. Having a conversation with a couple folks. So we've got Stars and Night Vision. Hello. Welcome. We've got Diane Boss. The boss. The boss. We've got Roger Blair out of Eastern Kentucky. Hey. Hey. We've got Purdue 411. Let's see. Who else do we got? Oh, we've got Rick Davis. Rick Davis is here. Oh, wait a minute. There he is. Yep. There's Rick. Good evening, Rick. How are you? Hey. And Straw Dog just joined us. All right. Hey, Straw Dog. Welcome. So there you go. That's who we got right now, though. Uh, things usually pick up in the few minutes here. So, uh, Michelle, what else do we got going on? Well, let's see. This live, let's see. This live show and podcast happens because of you, the viewers, and the listeners of the show, and your amazing support. If you would like to help support the show, you can send donations via super chats, <clears throat> super stickers, and we know that. We've got some folks in chat that have those super stickers with us. Nothing like seeing driver. We've got PayPal. You can become a YouTube member now, visit our merch store, or join our Patreon. You can also find all the links below in the show description. However, one of the best ways that you guys can support the show is to like, share, and subscribe. So, and don't forget to leave a comment below. The more subscribers and support we have, the more incredible content that we can bring to you. So also remember, because we like doing these, the the listener shows where we get the stories in. Yeah, it, just real quick, Michelle, we have started the the listener uh, listener communications and we've done our first two episodes where we just read your stories and, and put them out there and save them on YouTube for prosperity. So as Michelle was saying, we we like getting those emails, Michelle. Yeah, it it all started a while ago. We started with Communication Corner, but it was a so long time subtle. Yeah. It was so subtle, maybe one or two little stories. So we definitely love getting those stories in. So if you do have a story that you would like to send to us, you want to send it to mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and just real quick about that. Um when we did the audio podcast only, it was easy to interview a, a member or a, a guest and then be able to edit and then record our own separate things and put it all together. And, you know, it, we didn't take up the guest time with, you know, uh, reading stories. So now that we're doing this live show and releasing it later, we're just breaking it up. And so we have a listeners communications and then we have our live show with the guests. So you guys can pick and choose whenever you want to and whatever you want to listen to. Uh, we also need to give a couple shout outs to some Patreon members. So as always, we have Tabin R, Hava H, and Lisa B. And then we also need to give special thanks to our YouTube members. We got Diane Boss, Ghost Dragon, ZW. We got Paula Faust, Girl in the Desert, and once again, Lisa Bowden. So thank you for your support. So let's go ahead and get ready to bring Micah on. And to do that, we definitely need to hear Micah's bio because it is very impressive. I was going to say this, this is quite the bio. Mm. So with, with more than a decade in podcasting, travel, writing, and research, and the study of history and science, Micah Hanks has more than just a pass, passion for knowledge. 
His study of world history, culture, and philosophy over the years have helped shape his nonpartisan outlook on current events and always with a nod to the lessons history can teach us. Micah is a longtime advocate for scientific research into unidentified aerial phenomena, but more commonly known as UFOs. He is a contributing member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, as well as a frequent commentator and writer on the subject, and maintains an interest in the history and possible scientific explanations for aspects of the phenomenon. Micah's other interests include space studies, zoological mysteries, and unusual phenomena in nature. A hopeful skeptic, he advocates a critically-minded approach to the study of these subjects. In 2020, Michael launched The Debrief with journalists Tim McMillan and MJ Benias, a news site and media enterprise which examines science and disruptive technology the debrief has closely followed developments related to the U.S. government's collection and evaluation of information related to UAP. After several years as a producer for iHeartMedia, formerly Clear Channel Radio, Micah began podcasting in 2011. Micah has interviewed a number of experts over the years in the fields of science, technology, philosophy, history, archaeology, and other disciplines. In 2016, Hanks began working closely with the archaeological community in the southeastern U.S. in an effort to understand relationships between early North Americans and their environment at the end of the last Ice Age. This led to the co-founding of the Seven Ages Research Associates, Associates, and in 2018, he and the team produced a short documentary on the controversial Topper archaeological site in Allendale County, South Carolina. Micah is a frequent guest on podcasts, obviously tonight, yep. and radio programs, and has been interviewed by Vice, Forbes, Investigation Discovery, CNN Radio, Coast to Coast AM, Hot Air, and a number of other outlets. He has also lectured in America and Europe on a variety of subjects that include archaeology, unidentified flying objects, and historical mysteries. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to the show, Micah Hanks. Hey, Micah, welcome. Great to be here with both of you. Good to see you again. I'm glad it's becoming a more frequent uh, occurrence, you know, after, of course, Wayne and I met at the uh, Cosmic Summit here in my hometown of Asheville, but... Both of you have been guests on my program due to your personal experiences, which kind of form the basis of this entire program. So it's it's great to be able to be here with you and join you tonight. Yeah, well, we needed somebody to come on and kind of class this place up a little bit. And we figured, <laughs> you know, it, it better be Micah. So, <laughs> hey, but you bring up, get, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you bring up the fact that we first met at the Cosmic Summit in uh and it was down there in Asheville, and it was a, a awesome uh, experience. And this event, we it was basically about exploring the Younger Dryas impact theory, among other things. And it had some incredible presentations from like Randall Carlson, Ben Van Kirkwick, uh, Brothers of the Serpent. We had Russ Allen there doing his thing about the building of temples and all of that. But you were the one that did a presentation and opened up the convention discussing UAPs. 
So the question has to be asked, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but what spiked your interest in the UFO UAP phenomenon in the first place? You know, I think uh, ever, ever since I was a kid, I uh, had always been somewhat interested in that. Uh, my parents gave me a series of books when I was about five years old. Uh, and those books, I'll still remember. In fact, I have at least three of those books, but maybe more of them. Um, Peter Burns' Bigfoot, uh, The Search for Bigfoot is what it was called, Man with Her Monster. Um, there was a book by Ivan T. Sanderson called Abominable Snowman Legend Comes Alive. Uh, there was a book uh, also by, and it's a little more obscure, but it was recently reprinted by a, a, a gentleman by the name of Peter Costello called In Search of Lake Monsters. And then there was a book by Raymond Fowler. It was called UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors. Now, I think my copy of the Ray Fowler book is either on that shelf or in the one in the other room over here. Um I believe I still have three of those and then the Peter Byrne book, which was destroyed, unfortunately, when I was a kid, because when you're a kid, you don't know really necessarily, uh, you know, always how to take good care of things and realize the importance of these, you know, treasured gifts, books that your parents have given you. Uh, that one got destroyed. Uh, so I bought a replacement for that. So I still have each of those books, three of the original copies. Um, my parents always were teaching me about wildlife, you know, the natural world, things like that. They were explaining things that were happening in in the world in terms of current events, I gravitated toward those subjects because they had a beautiful library upstairs and there were the books on mathematics from my father's years in college and there was the literature. There were all the books about the natural world and those really interested me. You know, the books about wildflowers, the books that were the different like field guides for identification of all the different animal species. And so in terms of my earliest experiences, I remember going on the wildflower hunts and being able to spot and determine, you know, the differences between the different kinds of flowers, which one was which, the poisonous, different kinds of plants that grew in our region, all the different trees, the edible flowers and plants, things along those lines. Now, that may not sound like it's very related to UAP, but again, that sort of early upbringing sort, I think in a lot of ways, informs my modern approach toward this subject simply because I now look at the UAP topic in, in a similar way. I'm like, okay, Let's collect and let's analyze the different types. Let's, uh, you know, observe their behaviors. Let's see if there are patterns and correlations between certain kinds of behaviors of certain kind of UAP. And let's try to, you know, produce databases. Let's analyze these. Let's perform statistical analyses. Let's apply AI to all this. And let's uh, see how much of the civilian data corroborates with what the United States government is now collecting about all this. So I think that those early experiences were really important in the sense that I had a a good fundamental basis that my parents instilled in me at an early age of what a citizen science project is all about and what a person can do with or without any kind of formal scientific training. There's obviously a, a basic know-how of the scientific method, categorization, collecting of data, those kind of things. Uh, but also, as opposed to saying, no, you're going to study the flowers. No, you're going to be a botanist. When I asked about the books about UFOs and Sasquatch, they said if those are the books he wants and if those are the books that encourage him to want to read, we'll give him those books. So all went well until third, uh, about third grade. And my third grade teacher, I've told this story before, my third grade teacher did not approve of my interest in UFOs. And it was really becoming, you know, kind of the focus at that time for me. And I go through waves, although for the last maybe 10 or 12 years, UFOs have really kind of been, or UAP, 
right? The, the, the more modern term for them, but we're, we're fundamentally talking about the same thing. Uh, but I've really kind of stuck with that topic primarily for about the last 10 or 12 years, I'd say. Um, in third grade, I wrote my first formal report on that subject. And my third grade teacher gave me a B and she said, we want to study science, not science fiction, right? We want to study the real mysteries of space, not science fiction. And she stood me up in front of the class and, and told me that. And rather than being discouraged, I didn't see it as being like I'm being publicly shamed per se. I took it as a challenge. Um, and because of that, I kept checking out more and more books. And I kept thinking, I'm going to convince her that there is a there there. I mean, in my young mind, in, in, in third grade, I thought that there was a there there. Uh, and, and some of my uh, you know, colleagues, my my uh, uh, you know classmates, they seemed to think so too. They were very interested in these subjects. That I think was when it got really concerning for her because she began to see this as being okay. This kid, he's a bad seed. He's influencing the other kids. He's straying them, you know, from the 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 righteous path of science. And we need to have a parent teacher conference. And I, you know, I, I have to <laughs> hand it to my parents that they sat down, they met with my third grade teacher, and they said he's reading. So what's the problem? And so they struck a bargain. And she said, I'd just like him to check out normal science books every other week. And then he can read the weird stuff those weeks <laughs> in between, right? Now, she did me a favor because she was trying to instill in me a love for literature, which I have. a liter You know, again, a literacy with science, which as a layman, I don't have a scientific degree, right? I only attended uh, the, the what we call Harvard on the Hill here in Asheville, which is AB Tech Community College for two years. Uh, and I keep hoping with time, as time is permitted, that I can go back and action, you know, I can maybe complete a physics degree or an astronomy degree, something that's applicable to the kind of area of study that I have. But the bottom line is I have had those kinds of influences. And that third grade teacher was also a good one. She was a skeptic, but she was trying to ensure that I always maintained a scientific mindset about things, which again, I think the two of you both uh, will will understand and respect too as educators. Uh, and I try to take that position in terms of my own, whether it's as a journalist, whether it's as a science communicator when it comes to UAP, I try not to make unfounded claims. I try to be a person who communicates the scientific reality that I think the data points to while looking at what the best data actually yields and trying to you know interpret that reasonably without extraordinary claims uh, you know, political or evangelical kind of attitudes, the likes of which we often see on social media. I get it. People are very passionate about the UAP topic. There are a lot of moving pieces, a lot of dynamics going on with that right now. I think that means it's all the more important to try and maintain a grounded scientific approach. And it's a topic that has been so worthy of deserving, in fact, I think of science for so many years. So I'm glad to see it's getting some of that recommendation. I'm sure we'll talk about some of that tonight. NASA's recent independent study group and their you know, looking at this, of course, there's this new uh, Aero report that came out, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. I have it over here on my screen. Uh, we can talk about that, too. It's only two days old, fresh, and uh, still hot off the press, so to speak. But with all these developments, all the more reason to really maintain a grounded uh, scientific approach, uh, approach and outlook. And, and I think I'm certainly somebody who has benefited from the influences I've had throughout my life. And I'll just tell you this, too. Last point, uh, I've still got some of my... Uh, the, the the little journals that we kept in third grade where you can read me talking about UFOs, talking about oh that same gosh. book. I still have those journals. I'm, again, as an archivist of sorts, 
And again, hats off to my good friend David Marler and the uh, National UFO Historical Records Center. I got to spend some time out there earlier this year in Albuquerque with him and going through the actual files, holding the files, the original Blue Book reports with the red felt marker in the margins with the handwriting of J. Allen Hynek. Okay. Wow. Wow. And and again, I I guess I'm in a in a group, you know, a coterie, you might say, of of people who have that archival mindset. So I've kept my own history about this too, and I can show you the documents of my third grade teacher writing in the margins. Okay, Micah, but the science fiction stuff, don't bring that into the classroom. Let's talk about space and real science, okay? You know, UAP is space. It's real science. It may or may not be space, really. We can talk about that. Transmedium, there are different terms applied to it. But again, whatever this phenomenon is, wherever it emanates from, science should be applied to it. I'm glad it's seeing some of that. You know what's so funny, Micah, before Wayne starts asking you questions, you're talking about your third grade teacher, talking about the the balance between, you know, fiction and science nonfiction. I, I think the current curriculum company that I am piloting with my seventh graders must have talked to your third grade teacher <laughs> or secretly saw you write something down because in late November, I will actually be starting a unit that is the terror and wonders of space. Oh. And the fiction part of it is Ray Bradbury's Dark They Were in Golden Eyed. Oh, love Bradbury. Yep. And then all of the nonfiction pieces, like different articles about NASA and um, Mars and everything. So I, I, I find it funny that you brought that up because it's like, oh, I'm just thinking of all that lesson planning that I've done for when I get into the unit and oh, the project that goes along with it is creating a podcast. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, you're already well, well equipped for that. The two of you with your prowess on the microphone. Well, and you know, also, um, we, I just finished up with my ninth graders, uh, in my earth and space science class. We just finished up, uh, setting up a Mars colony. How would that have to be done? And I told them they were hired by Elon Musk and I had to break the, the classroom up into four different groups. They, we had one group that focused on shelter, one group that focused on uh, how are they going to handle water, one for food and one for, um, um, let's see, food, water, shelter. Oh, atmosphere. Right. Um, so what were they going to uh, do about that? Would this even be feasible? And then I ended the project with a two-day movie of The Martian with the question, what could go wrong? <laughs> everything. That's the simple answer, folks. <laughs> yeah, everything. One little one little thing, and, and it all falls apart. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do want to say, like you were talking, that we got to meet at um, the Cosmic Summit, the first ever one. I believe yeah that was the first yeah. one mm -hmm. um, and it was awesome yeah. yeah with randall carlson and and i remember seeing you and i'm like i'm gonna go hand i'm thinking to myself you know how you have that self-talk right i'm like <laughs> i'm like holy crap that's micah hanks he's just walking around just talking to people so i'm gonna walk up to him and i'm gonna hand him a card and just you know and i remember handing you a card and then i think it was like we started talking and then three hours later, you know, it was like a SpongeBob episode, you know, <laughs> where we were all outside. And I remember people just coming by and dropping beers off for you. Here you go. Uh, here you go. Here you go. Yeah, <laughs> really like, careful. That happens a lot at events, you know, people just want to bring me beer because they love <laughs> me, I guess. You know? 
but it was it was really cool because you know that i was able to talk to you kind of about the experience that michelle and i had which then kind of fell into uh us ending up on your program the micah hanks program Mm -hmm. uh telling and relating our story um but one thing i wanted to ask you about the cosmic summit what what was your overall assessment on the cosmic summit and did you have a favorite part i mean removing your your own presentation out of it was there something that you really loved about that presentation or the the summit in general well there's so many things i mean uh everybody there was so wonderful uh there were a lot of people who i have corresponded with in my archaeological interests like dr sweatman martin sweatman uh and and so many others uh it was great to meet them always good to see randall carlson he's a longtime friend of mine and and a dear friend too and um i've spent uh, many hours with Randall over the years talking about things, including in his living room, talking about Atlantis until 1 a.m. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't driving that. My friends are driving me home because I was already falling asleep about the time that I was leaving. But, you know, it's always and not, by the way, for lack of interest. It's just because I, I'm a bit of a morning person these days, <laughs> the older I get. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Randall and I have had some extraordinary adventures over the years too and it's always so good to see him johanna james i mean johanna was such a wonderful mc for the event and it was so delightful to meet her and uh, you know she's recently been touring with all of the turmoil that we see in the world johanna has recently been in turkey and has been to sites like gobekli tepe and she's been broadcasting some of those adventures on social media Uh, once again that young lady does an incredible job uh, when you came over and introduced yourself to me, I probably was standing there and had been talking for about 45 minutes with Scott Walter. Scott oh, and I, man. Yeah, we he hadn't actually, awesome. he would well, look, Scott's one of the nicest guys and we hadn't shared space probably in, I mean, at least since 2015. And I thought, oh, you know, he probably won't really remember me. And I walked by Scott and Scott's like, Micah, hey, you got a minute? And and we're standing there talking, and I'm like, gosh, man, this is such a great conversation. I'd really kind of like a beer. And Scott goes, ah, you know, I wasn't going to drink tonight, but you, let's grab a beer. And I'm like, <laughs> and, you know, we were just standing there talking, just having a great time. So, I mean, I couldn't tell you my favorite moment from the Cosmic Summit. I just got to give props to George Howard, my good pal. Oh, man. I've, I've been in the field. The Seven Age guys is, uh, guys is, the Seven Ages guys, uh, Jason Pentrail, he's an environmental scientist, but I mean, again, as far as an avocational self-taught archaeologist, he's one of the best that I know. Our team geologist, James Waldo, who is uh, his profession is as a geologist with the Army Corps of Engineers. But, you know, we, we spent some time in the field out there investigating the enigma of the Carolina Bays in South Carolina and uh, parts of North Carolina, too. And that Chris Cottrell, another great friend of mine who has spent time in the field literally working alongside me in archaeological sites. He gave an excellent lecture that really gave a, a, a fantastic, comprehensive bird's eye view of all the theories about the formation of the Carolina Bays. So, uh, you know, seeing Chris and being able to reunite with so many people who I've spent time with in the field working in the archaeological sciences, to be able to be together and see them presenting on a on a single stage, that was a really great experience. That, I think, was my favorite thing, meeting those those colleagues from afar, like Johanna and Dr. Sweatman, seeing old friends from the field. We aren't covered in dust, you know, and we, we haven't got, you know, twigs in our hair from working at some of those pretty remote archaeological sites. We're on stage and we're talking together. And there were other scientists 
who have participated at sites like that, done geochemical analysis, and who have contributed in various other ways with the analysis of proxy data that helps us kind of form the basis of our understanding of what you mentioned earlier there, Wayne, the younger Dryas impact hypothesis. They were texting me over the weekend, you know, how's it going? How's the event? They couldn't make it. You know, they wanted to know. So I'm glad to say that, again, George had a very successful event. There's going to be another one. It's not going to be in Asheville next time. It's going to be, I think, uh, down, I think, toward Greensboro. I'll have to double check. But uh, yeah, George has said he'd love all the speakers to come back. And, you know, if anything, I hope maybe in that instance, uh, if there's enough time, maybe I can talk about archaeology on the one hand. Obviously, that's a subject that's a passion of mine. But we are at no... Uh, any kind of uh, want for UFO developments and and data. Uh, and with my own uh, personal interest in this and the current science project, I'm getting off the ground with that topic. I'm sure I'll have a lot to report by the time the next Cosmic Summit rolls around. So oh, yeah. first, first year was great. And, and just, you know, sincerely, a highlight was missing you, or not missing, me- meeting you. And also, although I've missed you ever since. Uh, <laughs> with meeting, every meeting bullet. You, Meeting you at the event and hearing your account, and 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 I remembered that when I started getting this project underway. And in fact, you and Michelle were two of the first people I reached out to uh, when it came to let's let's talk to people about things they've observed and let's start applying some citizen science toward the collection of data from people who've you know observed this firsthand. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you you hit on the the archaeology thing that you were you're dig no pun intended digging into. Um, and that's the seven ages research associates. Right. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, because, you know, as an earth and space science teacher, I have training in geology and, you know, uh, geomorphology and all of that stuff. And I am when I first heard Randall talk, I was like, and this was, I think, on Rogan at one point, or I might have stumbled on one of his videos on YouTube. I was like. This guy has got some answers for me because when I was in college, I remember the professors would say, we're not exactly sure why the megafauna went extinct, Mm -hmm. but we think it's one of three things. The the, and, and they called it the ill chill or kill hypothesis. Yeah. Either all got sick and died, all of them, all 160 species of megafauna decided to get sick and die. They all froze or they were all killed by humans. And I would ask questions and they would never have an answer for me. And then I see Randall talk about this, you know, massive impact, a broken up comet slamming into the North American ice sheets. And then, holy crap, did everything start to fall into place as to where these things might have went. But again, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Seven Ages Research Associates that you're involved with? Well, I'd love to, and I'll just preface that by saying, I mean, even before the third grade incident with the UFO uh, report, I remember being put in timeout for disagreeing with my second grade teacher because she had said, oh, we think it was probably a coming ice age that killed the dinosaurs. And I was like, no, I don't buy that. I think it was a big old meteor. It was a big old space rock that collided with the earth. And my teacher, again, was kind of saying, well, that's just one theory. But as we now know, again, the Alvarez father and son team with the identification of the uh, the Chicxulub Crater, an impact event. Yep. And again, also, and this is significant because we're going to get into this with regard to the more recent archaeological developments, but again, uh, the abundance of a rare earth element, which I think in that case had been iridium at the Cretaceous-Tertiary boundary, which clearly was a proxy uh, 
evidence of there being a impact. And that because, of course, a uh, impact event with a extraterrestrial object, a comet or an asteroid, uh, which often can be abundant in, rich in uh, rare earth metals, iridium, platinum, things like this, their dispersal across that geological boundary and then the later discovery in situ in the stratigraphy of those areas where excavations occur can often be very indicative of an extraterrestrial impact event. And that's exactly what the Alvarez, Luis Alvarez and his son actually observed at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. So we now know that there was a, an impact event that led to them, you know, which was essentially a triggering event, a catalyst for mass extinctions that occurred about 65 million years ago. The idea that on a smaller scale, similar things might happen and that that could have contributed to uh, widespread megafaunal die-offs toward the end of the Pleistocene, which again was the last geological epoch prior to the Holocene, the Ice Age effectively, that's something a lot of people have been looking for and they've been more importantly trying to find evidence for that. Now, the Seven Ages Research Associates really is just uh, the, the formal name of a group of uh, like-minded, interested science enthusiasts who love archaeology. Uh, Jason and I first met, and I'd already been communicating with Mr. James Waldo, who was a listener of my podcast. And the first research weekend, Jason and I decided to get together, and we were kind of informally beginning an interesting study and analysis of Paleo-Indian uh, lithic points and things like this. Again, the Paleo-Indian uh, period, I guess roughly going from about 8,000 to maybe, I mean, according to some estimates, maybe as far back as, as 12 to 13, maybe even 14,000 years BC. But the point is, is it's in the early period of occupation where we begin to see specific kinds of projectile points that are indicative of some people call them cultures. I would prefer to call them technocultural complexes. And this is a term uh, that I borrow from Jason, uh, which describes a group, a cultural horizon, that even if they are not a distinctive culture, right, if they aren't all people from maybe one particular location, because we simply don't know. We don't have enough data, really, genetically or otherwise, to be able to make that assessment. All we literally have is their their stone tool manufacturer that they produced at that time. But around that time, famously, 13,000 years ago, we see the Clovis horizon where we have this, again, this technocultural complex. People were creating stone tools that were fluted projectiles. So again, imagine that you've got, you know, a arrowhead and it's got a groove that goes up the front, a very distinctive flat groove. The flaking patterns in terms of how the flint napping uh, occurred. It's very distinctive. The Paleolithic flint napping technique is very distinctive um, and, and unlike later periods, archaic woodland and what have you. So and I would argue that interestingly, those Paleo-Indian points are some of the most not only articulate, but also sophisticated in terms of the methodology used to create them. We were interested in all that. But the other interesting thing is that you also see the Clovis lithic production period, it kind of comes to an abrupt end. And then you see these, again, in certain regions, these transitional points. Up north, they'd be known as gainies, but down south, they've been identified as what are called red stones. And then uh, there's a, after that, as we enter the, the late Paleo-Indian, early archaic period, you start seeing what are known as Dalton points. Uh, one of the sites that the guys and I have worked at that Chris Cottrell has joined us at as well in the past uh, is the White Pond site uh, in South Carolina, which is in the greater Columbia area. 
uh, we've spent some time down there and we've assisted on the uh, excavations there. And there was a Dalton transitional late paleo, early archaic point that was actually recovered there, which I've held in my hands and looked at. Now, the point, no pun intended, about all this is that we were interested in a couple of things. The things that led to the technological changes, right? Like if you go to, to talk to the people at Apple and I say, okay, what's the difference between the iPhone 13 and the iPhone 14? I mean, those those changes may be fairly minimal, right? 14 might be a little lighter weight. It might be made of a more sturdy material. That glass screen may be a little less likely to break if it impacts with a, a blunt object, right? But if I look at, for instance, the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 14, and I say, now compare the differences between these two technologies, they're pretty significant, at least from our cultural perspective. Archaeologists can do a very similar thing when we go back in time and we can look at 9,000, 10,000, 11,000, 12,000, 13,000 year old points. And we look at the changes that occur over sometimes as little as a few hundred years, sometimes much wider periods, thousands of years. And we try to understand, so what were the driving forces behind those cultural changes that gave rise to the differences in the use of technology, the manipulation of stone to produce different technologies? That had been our fundamental interest. But again, this so-called bottleneck or this die-off, this disappearance that coincides with the end of what we might call the Clovis era, that was interesting because geologically speaking, we also knew that this essentially roughly coincides with what's known as the onset of the Younger Dryas period. So a question that had begun to arise for a lot of researchers, certainly not just us, but we were interested in exploring these questions too, was uh, is there uh, climate, paleoclimatological proxy data that supports the idea that there were changes occurring at that time and that the evidence might support a cataclysmic event, not unlike what the Alvarez uh, uh, family, father and son, discerned at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. I mean, could there be proxy evidence that seems to point to there being an impact event as being a potential instigator of, of widespread uh, climatic change and other changes that might have also impacted certain human populations, given rise to changes in point types? Because think about this. Might one driving factor for changes over a period of anywhere from a few hundred to maybe more than a thousand years, might a factor that would change the way that stone points are created and shaped involve differences in what's being hunted? What if a bunch of large animals that have been hunted originally are all suddenly dying off? You're having to hunt smaller things. You're moving closer to the coastlines. You're fishing more rather than you're hunting the large megafauna that existed a few hundred years ago, but which are now gone. People are going to change the way they hunt and what they use to hunt if they are hunting different things. So again, these are all questions. But the thing I think that was fundamentally missing had been that kind of clear proxy data that can be obtained through stratigraphic geo-archaeological and geochemical uh, analysis. But then within the last few years, a colleague of ours who happens to be the very archaeologist who has led those excavations at the White Pond site, Dr. Christopher Moore, he has really led the charge with analysis of samples from around the world that sure enough identified a platinum anomaly it coincides with what is recognized as that roughly 12,700 to 12,900 year um, Paleo-Indian period stratigraphic boundary that we recognize as the onset of the Younger Dryas. So just like the Alvarez's with the iridium bound uh, anomaly that was found at that boundary, there's a platinum anomaly that is found, and it's unambiguous. Let me be clear. 
It has been found at White Pond. It's been found at a number of Paleo-Indian sites. It's always consistent in terms of the period in which it occurs. The source of the platinum, one could say, is still somewhat in question. There are different mechanisms that might allow for that. Some have tried to argue that uh, a, a, you know, a volcanic eruption, the likes of which occurred at Locker Sea, maybe around that time, and there are new studies coming out about that that are also changing our understanding of that volcanic eruption in the ancient world. But uh, a volcanic eruption could potentially be a way that that kind of rare earth element might be deposited. But again, clearly, and I think that the evidence has shown from past examples, that an extraterrestrial impact is one of the best known mechanisms for that deposition of an abundance of a rare earth element uh, within a, a very distinctive geological or stratigraphic boundary. And that's exactly what we see at the Younger Dryas onset. So to me, that does seem to point to the idea that there might have been what initially was described by Firestone et al. a number of years ago as a uh, impact event. But then the question of, well, if it was an impact, we've got the Gulf of Mexico that seems to mark the, you know, the impact zone of this Chicxulub crater. Uh, so where's this, the, the similar impact zone for the Younger Dryas? There is one. Well, there, there have been a few that have been proposed, but none of them are unambiguously an impact crater that can be specifically identified with a, a paleogeological, paleoclimatological, and other data uh, with that period, right? Well, well that is what has led to the idea of an airburst, right? Right. Well, what's... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say what's interesting about that, that you bring up about an impact. There is ideas out there that the Saginaw Bay right here in Michigan is actually part of a impact crater of something yep. that made it through the ice sheet and actually, you know, created the little thumb area, right? Mm -hmm. The little Saginaw Bay there. And the, um, <clears throat> if you, uh, bisect the, the, um, Oh God, the Carolina Bays mm -hmm. and you draw lines of intersection of where they all point. Mm -hmm. They all seem to come from Michigan in this yeah, area. That's true. Now I personally, because uh, I've been interested in the Carolina Bays myself and I've stood in the middle of one before um, actually more than one. I, and I don't think this is a controversial position any longer, but I am convinced that a lot of them probably are Aeolian formations that are in likelihood the movement of water by wind and that would account for the directionality of their orientation but you're absolutely right and for a long time it had been considered whether those might be impact events smaller right. impact events from emanating from a larger impact event where ejecta from a larger impact point are all dispersed further south and they create these things the problem with that interpretation randall and i've talked about this and others too uh, is that you'll you'll find those same sorts of features in other parts of the world too, where there are no suspected impact events, and it yep. seems to be Australia. I've seen them up in the the Pacific Northwest and other places, and so it does seem to point. And Chris and I have talked about this. I know Chris has in the past very much favored the idea of there being impact uh, events that that explain these, but again, nobly and in a very true scientific uh, tradition, and, and and as a educator, again, I would expect no less from him. He gave us that perspective at the Cosmic Summit where he says, I'm going to look at that idea and I'm going to look at all the other ideas and personal Absolutely. investigations that he's done. So he gave us all these perspectives. And I'll just say we may not 100% know, but I mean, I, I have my own suspicions and I've put those out and he and I've talked about that. 
you mentioned Saginaw Bay. Now, that is another location that is of interest. In fact, before the uh, pandemic onset, uh, Randall had mentioned that he was going up there, and we had all been talking about trying to do a, a expedition up there. And I wasn't able to make it because, I mean, COVID struck and, and the whole world kind of went crazy. Yeah. Uh, but but I hope that we can kind of resume some of those. Another potential feature, and it's, it's indisputable. I mean, there's an absolute uh, impact feature. It's known as the Hiawatha Crater in Greenland. Yep. The question is, because we do see the uh, the accumulation of fresh Holocene ice formation over it, so we know that it was right around the time of the uh, Younger Dryas impact, but I don't think that it's a perfect match. I think that it maybe is a few, even thousand years older. Nonetheless, the discovery of a crater like that does show that sometimes new discoveries are made, and they're made in unlikely places. Uh, that one certainly was, and it seems to suggest that there may be a number of factors that would account for why we have not yet found the clear, unambiguous, explicit impact feature that we can associate with the Younger Dryas. But again, I'm not bothered by that because we also look at incidents like Tunguska in 1908, where there was no impact feature there either. When the scientists finally make their way in, they're suffering from scurvy and all these other things, from hiking through the, you know, through the the, the taiga and the tundra, you know, for for many many weeks. They get up there, and there's no crater. And if anything, right in the middle where there should have been a crater, a bunch of the trees are left standing. And then for miles and miles and miles, everything's flattened yeah. in the distance. Yeah. But but again, what had happened was we had an air burst where the object, the extraterrestrial object, before it impacted, fortunately, it explodes in midair. It still has a tremendous effect, but it doesn't completely level everything as an actual impact event might. So I suspect that the Younger Dryas event is going to be something that was very similar to what happened at Tunguska in 1908. New geochemical analysis that has been produced in recent years does point to widespread biomass burning. In other words, we're talking about vegetation being destroyed by fire and things along these lines that are also seemingly pointing toward a Tunguska-like event that occurred over North America toward the Pleistocene. Would that have affected megafauna? If it didn't kill them all at once, the, the impact that would have had on vegetation and food sources certainly could and would have had an effect. And certain skeptics have gotten after the, the YDH hypothesis theorists and said, well, you know, these, these species didn't all die out. There were still mammoths hanging around 3,000 years ago on Wrangell Island, right? We, we, we still had other large megafaunal species that existed um, uh, in, in various parts of the world until fairly recently. Well, yes, that's true. But to recognize a, a incident that occurred, right, a cosmic, potentially an impact event or airburst event that was a prime instigator in Earth changes that facilitated the gradual die-off, one thing we can all agree on is that these species are all dead, right? They did not stand the test of time and, and persist into the Holocene. So understanding the changes that were occurring in the Earth 12,700 to 12,900 years ago and understanding how those may have affected the life cycles of those species, I think is very important. And clearly with a platinum anomaly that's been observed by Dr. Moore and many others and other additional proxy data that has been accumulating, microspherules and things along these lines that have been produced in various analyses, it is to me and to my satisfaction very clearly pointed to there being a cosmic scale event that occurred at that time that affected not only megafaunal populations in America, but also human populations too. There was something really big that happened. Yeah. And yeah, that was I what agree. was, that was our interest with seven ages to answer your question. That, <laughs> that primarily is kind of what we were interested in, what drove us to want to get involved 
in participation at these archaeological sites, and it turned me into a total, uh, you know, paleoclimatological geek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's totally understandable. I'm, I, I'm more of the the idea that obviously there is uh, an impact that happened, but my thought process is more there were, that it was multiple and it was over a longer period of time. I think we get stuck in the absolute when it comes to like the dinosaurs, right? The Chicxulub uh, crater, it was a, a six kilometer, six mile. I forgot the dimensions that they say that this asteroid was that hit that wiped, you know, the dinosaurs out and gave rise to the, the mammals. But I think, there's there's nuance there in the in the younger dryas impact where we had multiple hits and i think we can see that and i'm getting all nerdy now but i i think okay. we can see evidence of that with the different meltwater pulses that we had yes so because they they did not happen overnight now some of them may have happened which then progressed as uh, certain religious and mythologies uh, uh, carrying on the story of a great flood. I mean, there's over 150 different myths out there in religious stories telling of humans being wiped out, except for a few that survived a great flood. Right. You know, so um, I think as humans, we really like to get our minds set into this, this one, one answer rules all and, and in this case, I think uh, it, it's probably multiple things that had the same kind of uh, an outcome. So. Oh, for sure. And George and I have talked about that. You know, George is is one who's very quick to acknowledge the multiple different successive events that include flooding yeah. and things along these lines. I also think interpretation of that kind of data from around the time of the because nobody disputes the younger Dryas. It's the it's the mechanism that gave rise to the cold reversal that happens there as, as we're exiting the Pleistocene, but it's undisputed. It's, it's very clear and unambiguous that there was a period of cold reversal that lasted, I think, around like 1,100 years. Yep. And, and you know, the original interpretation had been essentially that, that meltwater runoff from the glaciers in North America uh, and Europe, really, but, I mean, primarily from North America running off into the North Atlantic disrupted ther thermohaline circulation. And that, that disruption... Uh, to the ocean currents gave rise to the sort of trapping of colder temperatures, especially at northern climes, whereas uh, in the southeast where I'm located down here in North Carolina, there would have been kind of a warmer, wetter period that occurred during that time. And again, paleoclimatological studies would seem to, I mean, granted, if that's your area of, of expertise, you may be a little biased uh, or inclined toward trying to understand the climatological changes that might give rise to this sort of a, uh, you know, a cold reversal. But uh, a lot of the scientific literature, and I've read not all of it, but I've certainly read a lot of it, uh, seems to suggest not only that that is a potential mechanism for what was happening around the time of the Dryas, but also that similar cold reversal periods that mark the transition phrases between geological epochs in the past have occurred that mimic what we call the Younger Dryas. And I'd be fine if, if the abundance of the data in my, you know, to my liking said, well, okay, that's just kind of a natural process that happens, right? A geological process that happens, a climatological effect that occurs as we're exiting one uh, Milankovitch cycle, 
right? You know, a period. Yep. Milankovic, the uh, Serbian mathematician back in the 1920s who calculated based on the Earth's um, axial tilt, uh, its eccentricity, uh, and then also um, the uh, obliquity. The, the obliquity of the orbit. Thank you. Yeah, those three yep. factors, right? In other words, he's just describing the torque of the spin of the Earth, right? Uh, and and the, the shape of the orbit. Yeah, yeah the, the orbit not being circular, of course, but being an elliptical form that it takes. That the, Those dynamics is, is the Earth and its torque, kind of like a top, its spin is changing in relation to its position around Earth in that orbit over time, he said, could govern the coming and going of ice ages, right? And so these geological epochs may be marked by Dryas-like events, but we still have to account for the platinum anomaly. We still have to account for other geophysical phenomena that occur, uh, that geologists have identified and have known for years. There's the so-called black mat layer that is uh, found at places like Murray Springs and other archaeological sites. Um, those microspherules that have been the subject of numerous uh, analyses in recent years, and a number of other kinds of proxy information that seems to point to the idea that there was a widespread, uh, large-scale cosmic event that happens back back then. And even though it's not the same thing that presumably had been put forward by Firestone and his colleagues a number of years ago in their famous paper, I still think that a good case, as our ideas about what the instigator had been have changed over time, a good case can be made for a cosmic event that seems to have really upset things in the paleo Indian world of America. Yeah. And, and you know, um, just to go on one more little nerdy tangent here on this. I love um, it. Let's go. I, I, uh, I brought this up at, uh, after, is it Mark Young? I, I mean, I can't remember. Mark from, Young. Yeah. Right. He was the he second speaker. Yeah. Yeah. He gave his presentation and I brought up the question about was any consideration or has anybody looked at, the idea of what would happen to climate after a massive albedo change when these ice sheets disappeared, because Great now question. you're changing the the whole reflectivity of energy from the ice. Now it's ground, it's dark, and it's starting to absorb energy, which could then create a positive feedback loop to help instigate more melting and then more impacts start happening at that same time. Mm -hmm. And he really didn't have an answer for me. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was, uh, one of those things that's always really, you know, bounced around in my head was, you know, albedo changes. Anybody look, I've never heard it mentioned before. So it, I was hoping to get him on at some point here to actually talk to him about it and have him go over, uh, some more of his research on here, but yeah, uh, that'd be incredible. And, and Mark, by the way, one of the co-authors on some of those papers, uh, I was talking yeah. about that have looked at those, uh, those proxies. In fact, uh, like I met Mark backstage that morning, right before I give my talk. And the very first thing he shows me is a jar with a sample of the so-called black mat layer, which I think the sample had That's been collected. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that that had been collected from, uh, the Murray Springs site. For anybody who's unfamiliar, the black, black mat layer is just, again, another uh, uh, sort of anomalous uh, stratigraphic layer that's found at some sites that coincide with the uh, Younger Dryas impact boundary event. Uh, now, it's often been kind of speculated this, that this might represent some sort of like, uh, you know, ash or something, and that's not what it is. If anything, geochemically, it seems to point to the idea of there being a layer of sediment and that probably the formation 
a formation that indicates a, a long period of standing water occurring at these sites. I mean, think about this, like, for instance, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of discussion recently about these 20, maybe 21 to 23,000 year old human footprints at White Sands, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, just a couple of decades ago, if somebody had said, yep, there were humans here 21, 22, 23,000 years ago, a lot of, uh, you know, what you might call mainstream anthropologists would have laughed at that idea. And if we go back a century before that, in the 1920s, the premier anthropologist would have laughed at the idea of there being humans in North America earlier than three to 4,000 years ago. That's right. Right. It wasn't until discoveries at Folsom, New Mexico. And again, those fluted projectile points that we now associate with the Folsom culture. Okay. Uh, which that being the type site, Clovis, New Mexico, we have similar discoveries um, by uh, James Whiteman, I think was the uh, young man's name who had gone out there. Interestingly enough, and paradoxically, he was of indigenous American descent, despite his last name, but he had found these things he called warheads. There have been scientists from the Smithsonian that just completely discounted these. They said that's not anything special. But again, finally, once archaeologists began to look at it, they found indisputable in situ megafaunal remains and then these Clovis points, these large uh, fluted projectile points. Um, so those kind of discoveries, again, are what kind of instigate those paradigm shifts in archaeology. A century later, you'd think that with the history of the knowledge of those kinds of paradigm shifts, we would, we would really expect new discoveries that would change everything we thought about the, the ancient world. And yet, footprints at White Sands National Park, you know, that would have been left at that time when that earth was very soft. And as we know, there was an ancient um, lake there. 20,000 years ago, Lake Otero is the name that we give to it. It was 1,800 square miles. It was massive. And yeah, a human left footprints there. Now we have finally, through multiple independent analyses, confirmed the age of those, and they date back to as much as 23,000 years ago. Yeah, as, as Graham Hancock often says, stuff just keeps getting older. It does, I mean, these, yeah. These paradigm shifts are just par for the course, especially when it comes to American archaeology and the history of science on that subject. I mean, that's one of the most consistent features. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, before we get into break, let's go ahead and switch gears because I know people are going to be chomping at the bit. And I see we've got some science nerds in here talking about, yep, I'm loving this stuff right now. So uh, straw <laughs> well, dog, we everybody. see you there. We see you there. Um, but um, Michelle and I were featured on your your program and Micah Hanks program. And we talked about the Ford road triangle incident, you know, our, our encounter. And now you have been collecting eyewitness accounts from your listeners and you're starting a project based on some of these accounts that you've been hinting to. And we kind of talked a little bit off the air about this, but do you want to talk a little bit about why you started the collection of these eyewitness accounts and what your future plans uh, maybe and what you have in the works with that. I'd love to. Yeah. I mean, the, the basic idea here is that two days ago, uh, we just had uh, the unclassified version of the latest report, the 2023 annual UAP report delivered to Congress by the DOD um, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. But this is representative of the findings of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is the office within the DOD that's currently tasked with studying uh, what were formerly known as UFOs. And frankly, it's fine if people still want to call them that. Uh, Arrow calls them UAP, or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena now. Now, the problem, of course, is that although there are efforts uh, at trying to um, ensure a degree of transparency 
Uh, and and the DOD is trying to be pretty forthcoming with the American public, knowing the general public interest in this topic. One of the immediate problems that became apparent to me was that, first of all, Arrow did not have, and there was a Politico article a few weeks back saying this, uh, there's still no UFO hotline. And I'm thinking, well, actually there is. I mean, if you look at the National UFO Reporting Center, since the 1970s, the early 1970s, they have been a civilian effort based out of Washington, uh, not D.C., but Washington State up near Seattle, where they've been collecting sighting reports from uh, members of the public. And they've been doing a very good job. And that effort initially um, maintained by Robert Gribble, but uh, probably in the early 1990s was taken over by Peter Davenport, and he's still running it today. Yep, They are still the, the premier collection source for sightings. Uh, when pilots report UAP, okay, the FAA advises that they tell the National UFO Reporting Center, at least they did until recently. Um, and after it was revealed that they were that the FAA was finally providing some of that data to the UAP task force, the predecessor to Aero, and now the FAA data is being assimilated into Aero's analysis as well. Yeah, I mean the FAA has finally admitted we are when the data can be corroborated with radar. In other words, a pilot sees something and then there's radar data or some other kind of instrumental data that corroborates a sighting. We're sending those off to the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Um, I was actually the first journalist to get the FAA to admit in print that they were doing that. Prior to that, their official statement was, if a pilot sees something, we tell them contact the National UFO Reporting Center. So, yeah, there has been a UFO hotline for decades, and it's been a civilian science effort, a citizen science effort maintained by interested members of the public. And unfortunately, I think that there's a certain mystique about the, the government sightings of UAP and the government analysis and the findings, even though I think that really the most recent report that was put out by Arrow two days ago was met by a collective groan by the UFO community on social media and otherwise, because everybody right now is really interested, of course, in the big story that broke right before we were at the summit together, Wayne, uh, whistleblower David Grush coming out and saying, look, the U.S. has been collecting craft of unknown origin, non-human is what we suspect these things are. Um, he says that he has spoken, and he said this under oath to members of Congress, mind you. But, I mean, he said he's spoken to more than 40 uh, people in the intelligence community with knowledge of this program. Now, that remains to be proven. I happen to think that if, I mean, if there's that much smoke, there's probably some fire, too. And uh, Grush is by no means the only um, whistleblower who has come forward recently and who has made these kinds of uh, statements, nor were the two gentlemen who appeared with him. Uh, Lieutenant Ryan Graves and Commander Dave Fravor, who appeared with him and spoke under oath that day. There have been a lot of people who have come forward. Uh, a lot of them have not gotten the attention Grush did after we published an article about that and were the first to actually publish Grush's story in the debrief. Uh, but there have been a lot of people who are saying, yeah, look, there is a program and there are things going on. The problem with all that information is because of its classified nature, there are obvious limitations on how much can be released. Meanwhile, there are people like you two, right? Wayne and Michelle Braden, who have seen a triangular object while coming home one night from playing bingo. Uh, and you're not the only ones who have seen something like this. You know, the military is reporting these metallic spherical objects. A lot of people, civilians too, report seeing these objects. I'm seeing a strange object descending right near my computer. And as I pointed it, it stops, but it happens to be a spider I'm looking at right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, a lot of people see these things. And in the new report, I mean, Dr. Uh, Kirkpatrick even 
mentions the fact that there is a reporting bias because right now, Arrow and the military are only looking at the sightings that are occurring around military facilities or other sensitive U.S. government facilities. And although that bias is being somewhat mitigated by the inclusion of the FAA reports from commercial pilots, they're admitting, look, you know, we're not looking at the broad picture on the phenomenon. But meanwhile, I'm talking to Dr. Mark Rodiger, who has been the director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies for many decades. And he's frustrated, you know, that, hey, the government, it's great that they're looking at this, but they should be talking to people like me who have been studying this stuff for decades. My friend David Marler, I mentioned earlier with the National UFO Historical Records Center in Albuquerque. I'm also a part of that organization. But, you know, we also feel like, God, we've got decades of data. And then finally, I'm hearing NASA the other day with the uh, results of the NASA independent study team uh, that looked at UAP and, you know, not to disparage them. I applaud NASA looking at this, but I mean, $100,000. And they did little more than just say, here's some recommendations on how NASA could help and here are the kinds of things we need. And bottom line, we need better data. Well, it became very evident to me that, you know, it would be really interesting for there to be a civilian group who collects data according to the same sorts of standards that Arrow is saying, here's the kind of data we need. And they've published it and they put it on their website. They've, there are actually PDFs that you can read on arrow.mil that will give you an idea of the kind of data that Arrow is looking for and that they are hoping to try and acquire for their statistical analysis. NASA did the same thing in their recent study. And so, yes, I've, as you know, uh, you two speaking with the two of you guys about the triangle that you saw and which kind of forms the basis of the whole, you know, impetus behind this program that you do. Uh, I, I talked with you about that sighting. I've talked with numerous other people who've observed these triangular UAP, but also people who've observed these metallic spheres. I've talked with people who have observed all kinds of other things and some people who have also observed the apparent op, uh, occupants of UAP. Uh, why another civilian investigative effort? Well, very simply because if NASA and Aero are saying, here's the kind of data we need, my intention is to collect and standardize the data in accordance with those same efforts. And the ultimate aim would be to statistically analyze this information. And finally, and this is per, to me one of the most important things. My end result will be once we get this project underway. I haven't named the project, you'll notice, because we're still putting it together. But I hope that by maybe as early as the end of this month, we can actually talk about that and uh, announce the name of the project and everything. But the idea will be to make all of this data, since it's being collected mostly from civilians, but sometimes from former military. Again, Wayne, you've got you know background in military as well. Um, we want to try and make this all completely available to the public, and this will be information that will be a public service in the sense that people who have seen something can report it, but they can find out what kinds of things other people have seen, and they'll know not only that, wow, I wasn't the only person who saw something like this, but a lot of people have seen similar things, and now I can learn about the kinds of things that, unfortunately, because of the classification, the military isn't able to tell us, but we can apply the same sort of analytical standards and those rigorous standards toward the data that we collect that I think that Arrow and NASA have been doing on the civilian side of things. So that's the reason for a different kind of an effort. And plus, when the reports are coming directly to the organization that I'm putting together, we also have the benefit of being able to interview those people anonymously. We can talk to them. Their personal information and details will not be revealed. But we can interact with those witnesses. We can get additional information if there's any reason to actually warrant a, a 
uh, on-site investigation, if there's the, the uh, expectation that there may be residues or samples or something that could be obtained from a landing site, right? Because those have happened over the years. That kind of thing could be also investigated. So I think it's very important that in this tradition of the very kind of thing we've been talking about throughout the course of this conversation, citizen science, active citizenry taking a interest in a subject, getting involved, collecting data, making that data available so that you or I or anybody, right, the kid who's doing a seventh grade science project, maybe the folks at the DOD who are analyzing this and they're saying, you know, we're getting all this data from military sources, we should try and incorporate some more civilian data. This could be useful to everybody. But fundamentally, I think making that data available is going to be beneficial to everyone. And it's going to help us move the ball down the field in terms of broadening our understanding of the UAP phenomena, which is what you guys sharing your details about your sighting were able to do. And as you know, a lot of interesting people took interest when you guys came on my program and talked about your sighting. One of the first people who contacted me after you two came on my show was uh, Christopher Mellon. Uh, who's very well known in all this. Because Which is very all, surprising. <laughs> Chris, let me tell you, Chris is a gentleman and he's a scholar. And he also is extremely interested in these sightings and these kinds of things, especially these triangles. Uh, that's That's an area that Chris and I certainly share. And, and he was very interested in the sighting that you guys had. And I was, I'm always thrilled to hear from Chris, but again, he, like all of us is trying to get to the bottom of this. And the more data we have, the more that we share, the closer we may get to that. So that's the idea behind this project. And again, it's very close to launch. Um, I'm happy to say that we've already got dozens and dozens of sightings that I've collected just by talking with people like yourselves. And if I may, I'll also put it out to your listeners. You know, if anybody out there has seen something, I encourage you, please, to say something. This is a serious citizen science project. The data that you have about what you've seen uh, may be very useful to broadening our understanding. And I encourage people to write to me, info at micahanks.com or micah at the debrief.org. I'd love to hear from people if they have seen something just like you two did. And we had a great conversation about your sighting, too. Yeah, uh, this is why I have issues with debunkers i can always tell when there's a debunker that shows up <laughs> and they've never really had an experience and it's uh you know it it just it it really bothers me because michelle and i didn't ask for this we we weren't doing anything out of the ordinary and yet here we have this gigantic triangle who or whatever it was decided to show itself and you know, come to find out the details that we saw and that we were reporting and talking about, not only did it spur us on to start this kind of a program and first starting collecting data just off of Facebook, like, did anybody else see anything this night? And, you know, well, not that night, but here's what happened to me. And it just snowballed like crazy mm -hmm. to the point where I was like, okay, there's some people who are really troubled by what happened to them. I mean, it's like traumatic and they've come on our shows and they email us and they feel better just about getting it out there yeah. Um, and, and doing it. You know, they can be anonymous if they want or whatever, but you know, it, it was Michelle and I sitting there and talking one day and I was like, you know, if anything, we're trying to provide a service for people to, to be able to, you know, talk and get it off their chest and let them know, Hey, Here's a couple school teachers. She's got a master's degree. I have a bachelor's degree, top of my class for earth and space science. It's all, all I've ever done in, uh, you know, I've been very scientific and here we had this experience. So 
when I hear debunkers out there and they just like to look and pick, you know, look for little inconsistencies and go, oh, well, they weren't truthful back in 1989 when they said this. So let, therefore, let's throw out the whole whole story now. And that was kind of what was going on with David Grush. And um, I, I just I want to ask you before we go on to break, you know, the 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 debrief broke the story with David Grush. And um, it was a story written by Blumenthal and, and Kane, Leslie Kane. And uh, can you give us a little insight of how this came to be, especially for, and people note my sarcasm here, how this came to be for an obscure pro UFO news site. And there's a reason why I'm saying that, because there was a writer out there for the Washington Specter who just went off. And I think his article was called Spaceship of Fools. Yeah. And by the way, his name was Art Levine. And I've seen him live on another show talking about this. And, you know, he he's a very, you know, strong debunker of Grush. But I, I cannot stop. And, and go look at let's just look at fravor okay okay throw away grush okay throw away graves but look at fravor mm -hmm. you know and, and his squadron you know he didn't film it but a member of his squadron went out after they returned and they were the ones that filmed that tic tac and you mean to tell me these guys are all gonna lie and go in front of Congress and lie. I just, I, I cannot buy that. And then when I look at our experience, I just, I, I, I tend to go the other way. I will become the pro UFO uh, advocate. You know what I'm saying? It's well, just perhaps like, as you should, you saw one, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, and it terrified me by sending some kind of voice into my head saying, get away. You don't belong here. Get away. And then having my thyroid, you know, totally go haywire a couple months later mm -hmm. and, and turn my hair white and, and everything else and make me sick as can be. And, you know, that happened. That is true. I I've got medical records that show all this stuff that happens in the medication I'm on for my, thyroid and in weird male hyperthyroidism or graves disease that you know has happened so you know it I, I guess i i am one of those people that i believe it and i want to find out what's going on so anyways can you give us a quick look before we go into break on how you guys got together and and put this story out there I'd be happy to. I'll just point out a couple of things first. Uh, I haven't spoken with Dr. Kelleher about this, but, you know, Dr. Colm Kelleher, uh, you know, who had led the efforts with the National Institute for Dis uh, Discovery Science back in the 1990s and early 2000s, and then, of course, also was one of the key figures with the um, OSAP program, Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, run out of the DIA, a combat support agency of the DOD, uh, and, uh, of course, really one of the, the, the that was the taxpayer-funded program that in the 2017 New York Times article was referred to at that time as ATIP. There's been a lot of confusion about that. ATIP had been an unclassified nickname for that program. Okay. But there was supposedly also this informal Pentagon initiative afterward that borrowed that name. 
And that was the effort that Lou Elizondo was a part of and which essentially gave rise to the UAP task force that was led by Jay Stratton. Uh, so a brief bit of history there. But the point I'm making there is, although I haven't talked about your encounter uh, with Colm Kelleher, I have spoken with Dr. Kelleher, certainly, about uh, a similar sighting that was investigated by OSAP, where a man also suffered from some health effects after he observed a large triangle. And so, I mean, the health effects, and there are no health effects, by the way, reported currently by Arrow that I know of, and certainly not with the most recent batch of 291 reports that were uh, outlined in the, mo uh, the 2023 annual report that dropped on Wednesday night. No health effects associated. But then again, also, let's look at that reporting bias of mostly military sites. Um, exactly. Observations of fairly small UAP. This is the very thing that Dr. Uh, Rodiger and I were talking about recently. Mark Rodiger of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. He's saying, a great, you know, those, those military sightings are great, but I mean, the big triangle sightings, there's probably a reason why in the Aero data, 2% of all their sightings describe triangles, and they may not be these large ones like what you guys saw. But I get those reports all the time. Why? Because they're coming from civilians, because they're historical reports. Not all of them date back to the 1980s, but I've got a large number that uh, date back to the early 1980s, a lot of them from over the east coast of the United States and Canada, uh, but up through the 1990s into the 2000s, and then more recently, like 2018 is the one that you guys saw, and maybe I know of one that was even seen more recently than that, and I continue to get them. Of all UFO reports that I personally have received over the years, I probably get as many or more triangle sightings of these large black triangles than any other kind. So why does data like that not, why is that not reflected in what Arrow is collecting? Look at where the data is coming from. Look who's reporting the data. Look at the sensor systems and the capabilities that are bringing in that data. Look at the pie charts in the recent documentation in the new, new report. Look at how many of those, the large number of sightings that constituted only ambiguous sensor contacts or indistinct observations of something from maybe a distance and they couldn't even make out really what the shape was. So yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of data in the civilian sector that is potentially vital to understanding the broader scope of all this, but that in, that's not what's making its way into the aero data. Another thing I'll point out too, before we get into the whole thing about the Gresh story, uh, you mentioned Mr. Art Levin, who's the author of that article from the Washington Spectator. Uh, you mentioned he's a very strong uh, skeptic and a debunker when it comes to David Grush. I wouldn't say he's necessarily a good one. Uh, a lot of the points that he made in his articles were so erroneous that he ended up having to be corrected by Mick West, who I would consider a very good skeptic, and one who recently has said on record, you know, with all this smoke, you'd have to think there'd be some fire. So again, I've corresponded a fair amount with Mick, and I, I think that even Mick, although he is, you know, a, a in the operative sense, he is a debunker and a skeptic, but Mick really is interested in UAP. And unlike a lot of these people who think that they, they can read about it for two weeks and go write an article and dismiss everything and whether they get all the facts correct or not in print and are later half, they have to be corrected. Okay. That notwithstanding, they are resolute in their opinion that there's nothing to all this because I simply don't believe it. Mick's not like that. Mick, I think would love to think that there's a reality to all this. And he, what drives him and makes him want to study all this is his interest in all this. He just approaches it from a different angle, but fundamentally he's driven by the same thing that we all are. Mr. Levin, I don't consider a very good skeptic. I don't consider him a shining example of someone who actually gets all the facts straight when he's reporting it. And yes, he referred to the debrief and I'm not just taking it personally. I'm, I'm as an editor saying, look, man, fact check just a little bit. Yeah. He referred to us as a, uh, uh, obscure pro UFO website. I think that <laughs> the, how the many, story, how many it, millions of hits does that website get? Well, I mean, this month alone, I mean, gosh, I think in the first week we'd gotten 
at least a million. I mean, and then another million the week after that. I mean, we, yeah, we get millions of hits every month. The Grush article alone, I think, got close to four million hits. But his whole thrust had been trying to say that had it not been the fact that News Nation picked up the story and carried it, that the whole thing would have just languished on an obscure little website. Okay, well, obscure apart from the four million people that read <laughs> Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane's article. And let's also look at the authors of the article. They are the very ones who wrote the piece in 2017 in the New York Times. Hello. That blew open the whole story about what at the time was referred to as ATIP, but it was actually referencing the ALSAT program. Now, look, again, not to split hairs here, and no offense to Art Levin, I appreciate everybody's perspective, but I'm also a stickler when it comes to facts and just, you know, reaching out to people and trying to get information correct before you go to print. We never heard from Mr. Levin, and we would be happy to clarify any of these points for him. And I'm glad Mick West did, and Levin did issue a correction, and he updated his article to reflect the corrections that Mick West uh, had recommended. So, I mean, that's good, and I appreciate that. Um, now, that said, how it all came together for us, of course, this article had been something that had been in the works for close to a year uh, for Ralph and Leslie. They had been working with some other publications. Uh, there are various reasons why those publications had not turned down the article. They were continuing to try and work with it. The problem was Ralph and Leslie were very concerned that they were going to lose the story, and then the publication was not going to print it after other publications had already picked it up. And so they came to us and they said, you know, we're getting to a position. They didn't come to us last, by the way. They let us know well in advance. There's a potential that we may want to publish this with you just because the publication process is indeed being drawn out. We didn't just say, yes, give us everything and we'd love to print it. No, we, we went through a very rigorous uh, verific verification process within a fairly small amount of time. A lot of that occurred over a weekend, too. Uh, but we were able to independently verify not only all the individuals, but also their background, primarily Mr. Grush. Uh, and there was also some limited communication with him uh, to help clarify additional details about that. So that we were 100% confident with the story and ready to publish it the morning that we did. And then the very next day, the first teaser dropped from News Nation. So, I mean, I think that's very important for people to understand. Uh Kane and Blumenthal recognized that they would need to be able to publish the story when they did, lest they lose the story, and then the whole thing would not have been published by them at all. Right. Yep. And having worked on that for a year, I can sympathize with their what had driven them. But unfortunately, some in the mainstream media had misconstrued it as they got antsy and other publications turned down the story, so they went to a pro-UFO outlet. That's not accurate. There were actually two large mainstream publications that still wanted the story but they had been sitting on it and saying, well, we need additional time to, to, you know, verify that this person stuff. or that. And the, and the thing is, is I believe frankly, that as a, as a fairly small publication, although we do have contacts and sources and that we do try to as always maintain, I mean, comparable standards in terms of publication, vetting all these things that any of the larger mainstream publications would do to that point. I find it very dubious, the idea that they didn't have the same resources that the debrief had. And in, in fact, I think that those publications knew everything we did. They would have otherwise been ready and prepared to publish. But the thing I think that prevented them from doing that was knowing what had happened with the New York Times in 2017, the cultural effect that that had. And I think, frankly, a lot of larger legacy publications looked at this and they said, we don't want to be the next New York Times. We don't be the ones who are leading the UFO thing. We've got all this other stuff, the war in Ukraine and everything that we're trying to cover. We don't want to be the UFO publication. 
But after the debris published the story, they sure jumped all over it then because then they could pick it up and say, this little news site had right. this to say. And, and actually, for the most part, with rare exceptions and a few opinions that were being aired on social media, I mean, most of the, of the coverage that the New York Times and the, the Guardian, Fox News, New York Magazine, all these other publications gave the debrief, it was fairly either neutral or favorable. You know, there, there wasn't very much scathing uh, rhetoric being launched at us. And I think the reason why is because those publications also saw the process. And we were very transparent about that. We even published a series of interviews with Tim McMillan, my co uh, colleague. He's also the co-founder with me of The Debrief, where Tim outlined the entire investigative process that went into that prior to publication so everybody could see what we did and how we did it. Uh, we got a lot of praise from people behind the scenes about that, I'll just mention. Uh, so long story short, uh, I think that the, the most important things to point out are that, yes, Ralph and Leslie had worked very hard on that. They were the first ones to publish the story. They did bring it to us, and we worked very closely with them in that vetting process. They were great to work. They were true, uh, great to work with. They were true professionals. Um, and there have, unfortunately, now that the story has taken off, after we took the chance and we decided to be the publication that put that out, there have been many who have tried to pick up the pieces and take all the claim for that. And that's just not right. I'm not talking about my publication. I'm talking about those two authors. Ralph and Leslie deserve the credit for being the ones who brought that story to the world. And those who reported on it after the fact, many of them for larger outlets and to larger audiences, hey, I acknowledge that. But give credit where credit's due. They did incredible work, and I stand by Ralph and Leslie and their reporting. Yeah. Uh, in in Right around when that article came out, I noticed I picked up a couple of things, and we can talk about that after the break, and then we'll get into a few uh, listener questions that we had come in. But I think, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are on with Micah Hanks from the Debrief and also the Micah Hanks program, among other things. He's got his hands in everything when it comes to uh, investigation, science, technology, and everything. But what we need to do is get into a break because we've been at this already an hour and a half. I don't know I'm where guys. the time went, man. I don't know where the time went, but <laughs> all right, Micah, I'm going to send you to the back so we can go ahead and take a break and I'll see you in about four minutes. I look forward to it. All right. <clears throat> all right, Michelle, are you ready for a quick break? And then we'll wrap it up here with some questions and closing statements. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. All right, everybody. Um, remember, too, um, down scrolling at the bottom, I have, uh, if you want to contact Micah, his info is info at micahanks.com. So I'll leave that up there for everybody. Okay. We're heading out. We'll see you guys in four minutes. So make sure you're back. See you soon. traveling near New Boston, Michigan? Hungry? Well then, you need to check out New Boston Coney and Grill tucked away at 37005 Huron River Drive. With daily specials, homemade soups and desserts, and a staff that makes you feel like family, you will not be disappointed. Give them a try for dine-in or carry-out at 734-606-5313. You can find their page, including their menu, on Facebook. Bon Appetit!
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, everybody, we are back and Michelle is out for a minute. And we have with us tonight an incredible guest. That's right. It's Micah Hanks. Hey, welcome back, Micah. Good to be here with you. I have to say, you guys are so much fun, uh, and it's always a great conversation. I know I have something to look forward to every time we chat, whether you're on my show or I'm on yours. Yeah, this is, uh, it's really amazing. And, um, you know, once again, I think we can chalk these kind of conversations up now where, you know, before you would always think that there's some type of a, a wall that's in between just the normal people and, you know, celebrity. I'm going to put you in the celebrity category, you know, and things like that. And uh, but then we have these experiences that happen that seem to put all the pieces together. It's almost a weird metaphysical esoteric kind of a thing where these connections are made. And I remember talking to Randall at the cosmic summit and, you know, I told him I was an earth science teacher and I wanted to talk to him about uh, certain curriculums and stuff. And he says, well, I'm thinking of making a school and setting up a whole curriculum and stuff. I'm like, gee, you know, here I get to talk with this guy and, and now I'm all into this uh, with, with the younger Dryas and, and trying to look at things a little bit differently and asking my kids. What's great is I get to ask my students, you know, with the fresh minds that really have no, no knowledge of this stuff. And it's amazing what people that are not filled with knowledge can come up with as ideas to think about. And oh. uh, you know, it's the pouring, uh, what is it? The, the, the old adage of, you know, empty your cup so yeah. you can learn, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. When these young minds are unadulterated, uh, they are, uh, they aren't exposed to all the biases, you know, and all yeah. that. Yeah. That's a fresh approach and you can often get that. And and that's a great analogy, by the way, empty your cup, you know, the great master yeah. is sitting there and the kid keeps running his mouth and he says, it's time for tea. And he starts pouring tea and everything. And as he fills the cup, and it's overflowing. The young, you know, smart Alec says, you old fool, you're spilling right. the tea all over the place. He says, that cup is your mind and you're overflowing. He says, you've got to empty your cup if you want to be able to have any room for any new knowledge. <laughs> That's right. That's Love right. So once again, everybody, we are joined tonight with Micah Hanks. And also, if you want to contact him, make sure you email him at info at micahanks.com. Um, also check out the debrief, all the contact information is there as well for, uh, Micah and the, 
your whole staff basically is is available so um but contact micah if you are uh interested in letting them know your story so um it's really amazing and it does help to be able to talk to somebody with the experience and the knowledge. Um, and, and it's just been a, a crazy and wild ride. Um, so, and I do want to put this out there since, since I've, uh, uh, dropped Mr. Levin's name out there. If he's more than willing to come on our show and we'll get Micah to come on, we'll, we'll host a debate about, these things and, and, and we'll compare, let's compare some, uh, some notes and see, because here's, here's one of the biggest problems I have with Levin or Levine. I think it's Levine. Sure. Um, what I was reading his article just today, refreshing my memory on what he was saying. And there was a link there that talks about the different red flags. And I clicked on it and it took me to a, a YouTuber it goes by truth seekers and it, it, it's, he's talking about being discreditable of, you know, uh, Leslie Keene and, and Ralph Blumenthal sold lies to the New York times in 2017. So we shouldn't believe anything they have to say about Grush. And he's going through these slides that he put together. And it's like this guy that's doing this on this show on YouTube, he's just some little obscure little channel. He's a true obscure little channel compared to everything else that's going on. And he's been discredited multiple times about things. So it's like, are you really writing an article and then pointing to this guy for your debunking material? Yes. And here's why they do that, because that is what conforms to their expectations. And if it's something yeah. that they agree with, they will refer to that. Now, look, I have nothing against Art Levin. And like you said, I mean, even more than like a debate, I mean, a conversation would be good. I just yeah. like to have a conversation and just say, look, man, I bet we've got a lot of common ground. And he probably does note correctly a lot of nonsense in the field of ufology or UAPology. Whatever oh, yeah. He, he would be right to observe that where I take issue. Uh, and it's not extreme issue. I don't lay awake at not worrying about this. But since you bring it up, it it really has to do primarily with I think he has a fairly shallow perspective on the topic and leads with a presumption. And that seems evidential in his reporting and the corrections that have been made by other skeptics about things that he had made, assertions he made about Mick West and NASA and some of their analysis. You know, and and Mick had to go back and say, I never actually said that. Let's be very clear. I want accuracy and that's not accurate. Okay. Even if I agree with you fundamentally, that's not really accurate with what I've said. You know, I think that the issue is that to understand the nuances of the UAP topic does understand, or rather it requires a deeper understanding of some of the history of the subject, um, a knowledge and familiarity with a lot of the literature. Uh, you have to be aware of a lot of the hoaxes and things. I mean, a lot of the things that are the most dubious information about this subject, I see people out there, the legions on social media, constantly discussing as though it's gospel truth. It's accepted. And, and you know, it is basically gospel truth. They accept it on evangelical terms. I want to believe it. And therefore, this is what conforms to my reality. And it's what I'm going to choose to accept is my fundamental truth. Now, the skeptics do the same thing. The skeptics often have a very similar kind of evangelical attitude where they 
almost lead with a belief base. I mean, their belief is disbelief, but it's still a belief based kind of a method of engaging with the subject. To truly look at it, and this, by the way, doesn't have to require extraordinary claims, but I'm saying to truly look at the nuances that are involved in the UAP topic, I mean, sometimes requires being both open-minded, being skeptical of everything. And that's where I would agree with the skeptics. The problem is, though, that 100% of the time when people come to skeptical conclusions and explanations for all these phenomena, when you are 100% all the time, in every instance, able to explain phenomena that have perplexed people, the militaries of the world, and chief among them, the United States military for, I mean, really the better part of 75 years. And yet these things can be very easily, quote unquote, put up your air quotes, explained. I think that that, frankly, is, I mean, that's where I become skeptical of that kind of skepticism, because this is a topic that is very traditionally demanding. And I think deserving, again, of serious scientific analysis. Trust me, if indeed it were so easily debunkable, if everything could be explained, if everybody who were studying this were truly foolish, right, a saucer full of fools or whatever, to paraphrase the article title, if we were all really so foolish, why would NASA be studying this and be making recommendations about how it can be studied? Why would Arrow be saying, and just some quick hits from the actual study that came out two days ago, I mean, of these 291 reports, one was a maritime encounter, i.e. maybe some sort of a USO, a submerged object. The rest were aerial. Um, none have been positively linked to state actors like Russia or China. They remain unknown, their origins, their provenance. Uh, some have shown high maneuverability. Some have shown unusual morphologies, according to the language in the report. Uh, these are phenomena that obviously the UAP, that, that, that at least the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office is looking at, do not seem to strongly, in every instance, and in most instances, based on this data, they don't seem to strongly point to China or Russia with some quadcopters, you know, filming our battleships, filming our nuclear sites, filming our military training operations centers and things. There appear to be slightly more esoteric phenomena. Now, as NASA and others have tried to point out, they say none of that data now unequivocally points to extraterrestrial phenomena. I understand why they say that right now based on the limitations of that data. But to try and say, well, if they say it's not ET, therefore it's just a bunch of balloons and everybody's wasting the time. You know, everybody's wasting the, the taxpayer yeah. money. Everybody's just, it's not as simple as that. And I think that indeed, if it were, there wouldn't be reports coming out with that kind of data. There wouldn't be NASA advisories on how we can help to try and resolve what these things may actually be. Trust me, it's a very complex phenomenon, a very nuanced one, one that has decades and decades of civilian and military. And let's just throw law enforcement and stuff like that in there, too. I mean, there's a lot of very in incredible uh, uh, anecdotal data that, to me, strongly points to there being a reality to this. And without having to ascribe agency to it or project onto it what we expect for it to be, just acknowledge as a phenomenon. That, that to me is perplexing. And again, anybody who spends two weeks looking at this stuff and says, okay, you know, I've made up my mind and I'm going to debunk the entire thing. I'm skeptical of your skepticism. Try again. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's true because, you know, there is a difference between the debunkers and the skeptics. I would consider myself a skeptic, even though me Michelle too. and I had an experience, but, you know, I was just recently interviewed on a couple of shows over the last couple of weeks 
and talking about this. And my my idea is that how do we study something that doesn't want to be studied? I mean, it's not just a normal phenomenon. These things are whatever it is seems to be intelligent and only wants to be seen when it wants to be seen or studied or looked at or whatever. And I, I just can't help but get that feeling of like, hey, you know, we're not ready for you guys to study us yet. Or, or there's there's something else going on. But, you know, um, I don't know. What's your what's your thoughts on that? The, the skeptic versus the debunker. And if these things do not want to be studied. A skeptic is a person, in my view, who always tries to apply a rigorous methodology, I mean, a scientific mindset, and who, when actually presented with an opportunity to study an example, a case, will implement the scientific method, right? We're going we're gonna to make observations. We're going to form a hypothesis. We're going to test that. We're going to see what the results are. We're going to see if they can be replicated. We're going to try and institute a test for falsehood, right? Falsify the information, and whatever we are left with at the end of the day, if we can, if we can go through a analytical process that yields a result, you know, if the unexpected result at the end of that is okay, we can't falsify this, we can't, you know, identify the phenomena. There's just something that we couldn't identify, and it was very strange, and it doesn't seem to conform to any kind of known phenomena. I actually think that's been done in a lot of cases involving UAP. Uh, then there are some instances where. There, there's much more speculation that kind of goes in into uh, the study of. I often hear Mick West refer to the uh, the low information zone, and he's right. Uh, that's a, a real issue with a lot of UAP sightings. Like for instance, a great example uh, is this uh, spherical UAP that was observed flying over the Middle East. It was mm. filmed by the electro optical systems on board a MQ9 Reaper drone. I think in like 2018 or 2019. Um, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick actually revealed this footage after it was cleared for release through Dobster. Uh, and this was shown publicly during a Senate hearing earlier this year, this past spring. Uh, and this is very similar to a still image that was also released earlier, I think, by filmmaker Jeremy Corbell called the Mosul Orb, as they call it. Uh, and these both seem to display these sort of metallic spherical objects that are seen moving. There's nothing extraordinary about their characteristics or behavior. They're not zipping off, you know, at, at lightning speed. They're just moving along. Based on the limited data from those videos, we can't really tell if it's an object that's being carried on the wind or an object moving of its own volition and it's being propelled by an unknown source of propulsion. Um, and that's one of the problems. Now, again, a lot of skeptics just lead with a presumption, therefore balloon, folks. This is simple. I would have to think that Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick and the folks at the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, if they thought it were so simple as just to say that this is a balloon, they would tell you that that's what they think it is. Now, it is correct to say that some of these small spherical UAP uh, display balloon-like characteristics. But some of them also, according to the current data, and here's the problem, we have not had apart from instances like that video. And I suspect that the reason that that video has been released is because that video is one of the more innocuous examples of an unresolved object sighting. I have no doubt, and I have very good reasons to not just suspect, but to presume 
that there actually are much better examples of this footage. I mean, I've I've met the former director of the UAP task force. I've spoken with people who also worked uh, from within the intelligence agencies in support of that effort, which was the predecessor to Arrow. I've never met Arrow personnel. I've never met Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick. Uh, the closest to a connection that we've ever made is that uh, I sent him a LinkedIn request and he accepted. And he seems like a very nice guy. And he did answer a, uh, a brief query from my colleague, Tim McMillan, in an article that we wrote uh, that had to do with him at, at one point. So he's always endeavored to try and be, uh, you know, a good communicator. I think in, from my limited interactions with him, my team and I, I think that he displays those those qualities. Um, but again, I think that the, the footage that has been released probably has been released because it isn't a good example of UAP. And I would have to imagine, based on things I've heard from those who have observed better examples, that there's much better stuff that actually exists. Um, that those are the ones that they use as the as the basis for the um, kind of analytics that have been released in the new report that describe, for instance, uh, objects that are capable of stationary, hovering, and then sudden takeoff and and moving at speeds of close to Mach 2. Now, balloons don't move at Mach 2. Balloons, in truth, don't usually hover. Again, being exactly. live there, when they are being carried on the air, they are, they are drifting. Some of the, the anomalous characteristics of these objects isn't that they are like magic and that they, they perform magically. Actually, some of the more anomalous characteristics are actually their apparent ability to move against or to hover in avoidance of influence from the wind. But then that anomalous acceleration, the other interesting thing too, and this is something that's described a lot, we don't have, at least in the publicly available footage that's been you know, widely observed and discussed, we don't have what appear to be examples of this rapid acceleration or instantaneous acceleration. But again, as a physics teacher, I guess, uh, well, sciences teacher, Wayne, you know, with a knowledge in physics, you too, right, would probably understand, you know, why that's unique, why it's interesting. I mean, if, if we have an object that doesn't start moving and then it picks up speed, there's no acceleration. In other words, it seems to just instantaneously um, uh, just start moving at a fast speed, right, in the absence of acceleration, right? Yeah. Uh, instantaneous velocity, we might say. So that that is uh, a, I mean, even if it's only moving like Mach 2, and that can be explained in terms of known aircraft, there are a lot of aircraft that can move faster than that when you've got a little object that's not displaying clear signs of propulsion and it's able to move that quickly without any kind of, of discernible acceleration that's not the kind of thing that in terms of physics right in terms of vectors and scalars that we expect to see that's not the kind of thing correct that, that, that conforms to known technology now it does not rule out the possibility of some kind of a drone some sort of advanced drone but the problem I encounter with that is I know of no technologies. And trust me, I make it my business in the defense and sciences sectors to try and know about all the kind of technologies, all the kinds of developmental drone projects, all the kinds of, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles, all the orbital vehicles that are being designed, you know, reconnaissance platforms. A lot of that stuff I'm not going to be told about. I'm not going to know about. It. I'm not going to have access to. But in the realm of what is known through open source intelligence and through journalistic rigor, I can tell you those kinds of things, those kinds of things that these objects allegedly display in some of these instances are not known technologies. So either somebody has that stuff and is using that stuff and it's not been made available to the public, which is definitely a possibility, 
and or there's something else out there that uses and displays these capabilities that is not ours, is not a known technology, and that is something that should be of great interest. Now, again, Dr. Kirkpatrick and Arrow, if they are maintaining this interest and they are saying that these things display these characteristics, that's probably why they find them interesting. But one of the most telling things about the new report was that very statement that currently of 291 reports, none of these have been positively linked to a foreign actor like China or Russia. So in other words, we're watching things that can do stuff that shouldn't be capable of being done. We don't know whose they are. That to me is well worthy of scientific analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that right there, you know, yeah, you you can't say that any better. So. Yeah, and, and it does. It has to do with like inertia and and everything else. You can't you can't go from zero to twelve hundred miles per hour in an instant without whatever's inside getting just totally smashed. Mm-hmm. You know. And so, anyways, let's go ahead and hit some questions here. So, Micah, one of the questions that we had come in earlier was, did Micah have personal experience? So. Do you have an, a personal experience with any UFO or even paranormal? Very few. I've had some what you might call meaningful uh, coincidences like uh, synchronicities and things like that that have happened over the years. And I think a lot of people have had that. Uh, when it comes to the really interesting stuff, UAP sightings and the like, I've never had a sighting of anything that was really unequivocally a mystery i mean i've seen some interesting little lights and things down there at brown mountain uh david weatherly and i were there a couple of uh, winters ago and we saw some little just kind of like flickering lights along the trees and i remember him saying he says i'm gonna be mad if we leave and you go around and you tell people you didn't see any lights up here tonight so i mean there there have been things but i mean when it comes to a full-blown wow there was i mean comparable to the sighting you guys have i've never had anything like that and i think that's what drives me i hope to have one of those one of these days <laughs> <laughs> well i just be careful what you wish for uh, yeah <laughs> you I know. know i just i I, <laughs> I wish everybody could so michelle and i would would not be so uh sometimes seem so alone in this but then again it's like man yeah, yeah. But then again, we're not alone in this. Well, we're not. We're not. We're which not alone we've, at all. We, we found. So that's awesome. Uh, and then uh, let's see here. I got to I gotta show you this. So Hides and Grass says, Micah wasn't the kid you wanted if you were a teacher. <laughs> well, I, I, I disagree. I disagree. I'd like I to think I was a good kids. pupil. <laughs> yeah. But see, I, I love those kids in, in, as being a science teacher. I love having the questions and stuff because... You know, honestly, a teacher should always be in, and, and this is very cliche and stuff, but you should always be a lifelong learner. Yes. And, and so you should be learning from your students as much as you're trying to teach them stuff. Amen. And so guys, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of how I, I like to do things myself. And, and I like to try to distinguish myself between being a teacher and an instructor. And I learned this in years of martial arts and it was, a question that was posed to me by my instructor when I got one of my first black belts. And he said, what is the difference? I want you to write down what you think the difference of, you know, between an instructor and a teacher is. And it was hard to come up with what, you know, what, what, what was I supposed to say? And basically what it boiled down to is to me, an instructor is somebody who gives instructions. Say, okay, you do this, you do that and whatever. 
but a teacher is somebody who can identify using certain psychology what a student actually needs, not what somebody else wants you to tell them or show them what to do. It's can you identify what a student needs? And that's the difference, in my opinion, of a teacher versus an, an instructor. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So let's see. Really quickly, which martial arts uh, did you study? Which I, I well, I started with uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu back in the day because the Gracies were coming up here and teaching it to Army infantrymen. And then we took it and taught it more. We kind of spread it out. And that really got my interest in in the, the jiu-jitsu aspect. And then years went by after I got out of the military. And then I started doing some karate. And then I went into Aikido. And then my instructor wanted to learn the background of Aikido. And we met an instructor from Japan who has since passed away, but he was a student of an old ancient Takeda clan system called Daitaru Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, where all of this stuff, we kind of term it as the grandfather of of Jiu-Jitsu and all these. This is where we learned like how to wear the samurai armor and actually move efficiently in it. Everything was based on sword movements using gravity. I mean, the science behind it and having an instructor that was an engineer in his normal day life. And he would, would present things to us and teach us things that was just like, wow, we we've actually forgotten how to walk as human beings, you know, and the stuff they were doing a thousand years ago for warfare is is makes us look ridiculous nowadays. Oh, you yeah. know? We've forgotten how to walk and we've also forgotten how to breathe. And I'll just also say, oh, this. Yeah. you know, if I had to answer that question that your instructor gave you, you know, or your teacher, the instructor will show you the way the teacher will help you learn it. Yeah. By providing you what you need. And there is a difference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is. There is. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was very interesting. And and one, one thing that I learned from him, which I thought was really cool was, uh, to properly walk, you have to fall forward. And it was always about relaxing the muscles around the knees. That's how precise we would get you. It's, you want to act like you're walking because you can't go long distances. If you're pushing off your toe and heel wearing 80 pounds of armor so you learn how to fall forward by relaxing your knee like as if somebody kicked you behind your knee you know how kids do that like boom and you're like falling backwards well you can do that to move forward too and that was the Mm -hmm. how he taught us and it was amazing because the amount of power you can generate with gravity pulling on your on your center of gravity to move you forward you're basically free falling for a split second it's amazing. And it's like, oh my God, you're so strong. No, not really. That's just gravity. <laughs> yeah. But so, leveraging that to your advantage, whether exactly. on the battlefield or just in daily movement. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, Rick Davis had asked, and, and since you brought this up um, about the extinction event too, uh, everyone should take a look at Ashfall, Nebraska. All species of African animals are there. They all died instantly, he says. Have you ever looked into Ashville? Ash, oh, my God. Why can't Ashfall. 
Ash Fall, <laughs> Nebraska. I haven't, but I'm very interested in that. And uh, okay. yeah, that would be really interesting to look into. He says it's run by the University of Nebraska. So that's mm. interesting. So I wrote it down to check into it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. For sure. And then let's see. Uh, <laughs> okay. Here's one. Uh, when we were getting all nerdy about the younger Dryas Impact, uh, Spooky Cool says, uh, or Spooky Cool podcast says, love it. Some think we are on Earth's fifth restart. Now, I do know there's evidence to provide that we are either a second or third generation star. Like there has been a star here at Nova, reformed, new solar system, blew up, reformed again. Um, have you looked into anything like this? Only in the context of the uh, the periodicity of uh, of uh, climatic changes and things like that. So, okay. I mean, for instance, I mean, one consistency throughout history, I think, for life on Earth has been, as I try to adjust this inner monitor, I'm still getting used to these things, but uh, one consistency really for life on Earth has probably been mass extinction events. And there have been a lot of them that have occurred throughout time. Uh, and, and we always tend to think of, you know, Earth began as these primordial elements in the in the oceans, and then that gives rise to algae, and everything evolved from that. You know, it's not quite so simple as that, because often there have been periods, again, had, had Earth continued unhindered when the dinosaurs reigned supreme, I mean, the world of today might be very different. I... I have a strong suspicion, though, that probably some form of intelligent life would have evolved, even you know from from dinosaurs, you know, there being reptilian life forms, you know, that would have that would have uh, evolved, attained some kind of uh, probably bipedalism, probably a a generally anthropomorphic kind of a figure, a large cranium, stereoscopic vision, those kinds of things, and and. As strange as it sounds, I often see the arguments against alien life looking like us, but really there are some very strong arguments for why they would look just like us or actually not identical, but would still have a similar human form. And I, I have no doubt that there would have been intelligent life, whether or not it was mammalians that rose in the aftermath of the great extinction of the dinosaurs, or if it had been reptilians uh, that were their descendants, right? But the point is, is that as far as this being the fifth cycle, there have been so many of those mass extinctions, and some have even tried to say if there had been an intelligent species on Earth, human or otherwise, would we readily recognize the evidence of their technological capabilities and their intelligence? We might not. Again, that Silurian hypothesis, that idea that it was uh, proposed a few years ago by a couple of scientists, very interesting idea, very interesting approach, the idea that there could be mechanisms through which we would not recognize a, a past earth history where another intelligent civilization existed. Yeah. Uh, stars and night vision is asking a question and I had it on my list right here. Uh, do you have a favorite all time UFO case that you reported on? And if so, what was that case? And his question is, do you have a favorite UFO sighting or story? So same, same basic thing. Yeah, real hard to pick a favorite. I mean, <clears throat> a couple, though, that do come to mind. Uh, the disappearance of the pilot, Frederick Valentich, in 1978. He was a, a pilot flying a Cessna 182L south toward King Island. 
um, in October of that year, and he uh, he radios to Melbourne Air Traffic Control. Initially, he he's just asking, you know, have you guys got any traffic at this altitude? And what he said he saw was either an object or a green light, but, you know, there was a green light on the object, apparently, and this thing was kind of flying circles, kind of, you know, orbiting him. He said at one point it was orbiting him, and he was sort of orbiting it, but that um, he was in constant communication, radio communication with Melbourne Air Traffic Control, uh, and toward the end of his encounter, he tells air traffic controllers, he says, uh, um, Melbourne, this object's directly above me. It's it's directly above me, and it's not an aircraft. Uh, and then there was like 14 seconds of metallic scraping noise, and they lost radio communication with Valentich, and he was never seen again. And his aircraft was never recovered. Now, I believe there was a cowl that could have belonged to a Cessna 182L that was found uh, within the waters of the Bass Strait, which is what he was flying over at that time. There are questions about Valentich's uh, story. Um, I guess, you know, one of the best questions probably would be that there had not been a, a detailed flight plan uh, published or that based on what he had indicated to others that he was planning on doing, he seemed to have deviated from that. Um, now, I had the fortune of getting an opportunity to speak at length with uh, Frederick Valentich, who was 20, maybe 21 at the time, with his girlfriend at the time that he went missing, Rhonda Rushton. And uh, she and I, over the years, have kept in touch. She's happily married now, uh, but she is just a delight. And, you know, we were able to talk and compare notes about that. And um, she talked about being <laughs> interviewed, but, I mean, it was almost more like an interrogation. And she filled me in on some aspects of the case that had not been publicly, uh, you know, really widely publicized. Now, the Australian Aviation Authority, Authority did uh, eventually release their files on that a number of years ago. I think they were obtained by Keith Basterfield, the excellent Australian researcher. And they do say that Freddie seemed to have an interest in UAP even before his encounter. Again, the skeptics have tried to say uh, that he, because he was interested in UFOs, whatever he saw, probably the planet Venus observed through the lightly green-tinted cockpit windows he and you know he interpreted that as being a ufo and went into a death spiral crashed into the ocean and i'm like you know look the bottom line is you don't know nobody will ever know okay but based on what little data we have which is and there was a recording made it was never publicly released but there was a uh, a, a transcript of the recording that was made publicly available valentich only describes there being a object with a green light on it that was flying around him. He was able to maintain constant visual uh, contact with it for a number of minutes. And he disappeared as he was simultaneously radioing back to Melbourne air traffic control that the object was directly above me. Again, the skeptics try to say he was flying upside down. He didn't realize it. And the light from the, from the aircraft was reflecting off of the ocean beneath him and he crashed into the ocean. You know, there's no more evidence of that than there is that he was abducted by a UFO. Right, We just don't know what happened to him. But that case was one that really perplexed me. Something that Rhonda did tell me, though, as I said, you know, did you ever fly with it, uh, Freddie? She says, oh, yeah, yeah, many times. I said, weird question. Did you guys ever fly upside down? She said, yeah. Uh, Freddie could be a bit of a, a daredevil. And she said he, he used to do loop-de-loops and things like that. But she said, I've been in the aircraft with him when he was flying upside down. I said, if you were flying upside down, would you have known it? And she says, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the radio. 
you know, it'd, it'd be like dangling, you know. She said, trust me, if, if he had been flying upside down, he would have known he was flying upside down. And and her limited experience flying with him, she said, gave her that impression. And so, again, that's a case that has always uh, been of interest to me because I've wanted to know what happened. Uh, what was the UAP doing? Why was it following him? You know, um, that's a that's an interesting case. And then one more, too, that I'll just throw in there is the uh, 2000 St. Clair County Triangle up there in St. Clair County, Illinois, where multiple law enforcement officers, Ed Barton uh, and several others, they saw this thing flying over Illinois, multiple ob observations. Again, some skeptics have tried to say that it was a, a VIP tour being given of a good, uh, it wasn't a good year, it was the American Airship Company, and they said that it was their blimp. Now, there's never any flight log that's been offered as evidence of that. Uh, there's never been an explanation for why or if there was a VIP tour being given at 3 a.m. when these officers observed this thing. And furthermore, the explicit description of a trianguloid shape that's described in the real-time accounts being offered by the police officers in the police dispatch recordings that were obtained through FOIA after the incident, actually Public Record Act requests, because that's what happens on the state level, but nonetheless, still, you know, in the essence of FOIA, it was basically a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, but the officers did explicitly describe and are heard saying in the police audio Dispatch recordings. Yeah, we got a big object. It's like a big triangle, man. That thing's huge. It's the size of a size of a football field. So that's one of those really important cases too. And it was in depth. I mean, really, the subject of in depth research by David Marler, uh, who at the time had been working with MUFON. Now he's an independent researcher and, of course, the uh, director of the National UFO Historical Records Center, um, the National Institute for Dis uh, Discovery Science that was Bob Bigelow's scientific investigative group that Colm Kelleher and others, John Alexander, I think, had been invo involved with at the time. They investigated that case. But again, I find it really hard to believe in the, in the skeptical arguments to me of a, an American airship company blimp flying at night that every single one of those police officers somehow in real time observing it mistook for being a large triangular object is just completely dubious to me. I think well, that if, if that is true, then couldn't we repeat that experiment? You ought to be able to do that real right. easily. Right. Just call them up and be like, Hey, tomorrow night. Yeah. And again, the, the, the skeptic idea yeah. that we have to be able to offer an alternative explanation for every UFO sighting. And that when we do that, we have solved the case is an erroneous presumption that is often based more on speculation than the seemingly extraordinary alternative, which is, hey, sometimes people see things, they don't know what they saw, and we don't have a good explanation for what it was, apart from the idea that there was an anomalous observation of a large or, you know, what other, whatever other kind of anomalous characteristics the UAP displayed. In that case, multiple police officers saw a very large triangular object flying slowly over Illinois. We don't know what it was beyond that, right? My yeah. skepticism ends right there. Okay. Yep. Yeah, Michelle, what what did you put into chat there? Because you're talking about one of my favorites here in Michigan. Oh, uh, you know, it was the the '94, the Muskegon, the West Side. Um, it was the one with Jack Bashong. But the National Weather Service operator. Yeah. I'm still in, intrigued by the one snippet that was accounted for, and it was the two campers. 
oh, that at around water. midnight saw the funnel of water coming up from Lake Michigan over the non-frozen part up to this craft. But that is the only thing that is mentioned. So, and it was so brief and it's just like, you know, I wish yeah. that there were more details into the account um, or that like the, the two that were camping that night would just come forward and tell their story of what they saw. Right. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting observation because there've been many over the years of UAP hovering over water and there being like a funnel like kind of a, yeah. a spout being drawn up toward it. And we don't know if that is a result of the UAP exiting the water or if there's the intention of water being pulled up into them. Yeah. I mean, well, Jack, Jack Bouchon said that he confirmed that there was something on his radar hovering over the water at a couple thousand feet. He couldn't see or tell if it was drawing water up. It wasn't given a radar return, but the craft was. And he was like, it's not an airliner. It's not a plane going into, you know, uh, Chicago O'Hare. Um, but you know, he saw a mess of these things show up over the non-frozen part of Lake Michigan and, and doing something there. And it was only over the part that was not frozen. And, and they the assumed part. a trianguloid formation too. Did they not? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least the lights moved and then they created the triangle. Yeah. yeah. So Very yeah, that's really bizarre. All right. Well, Micah, we're going to start. Uh, wrap it up here i think uh going almost two hours and 15 minutes is is probably a, a good cutoff point but do you have anything special coming up or uh, anything you want to uh, give us a preview maybe about the next episode of the mike hinks program and what you got going on well certainly this week i'll be uh, weighing in on the new report produced by the all domain anomaly resolution office Again, the UFO community doesn't seem very interested in this report. They're kind of like, okay, come on, show us the bodies. We don't want to hear about statistics, you know, and the different shapes. But I always try to offer intelligent perspectives on these reports and these analyses uh, that, that are being conducted. And again, the very fact that the Department of Defense continues to look at these things and to produce these reports and to say, look, you know, we don't have a clear explanation for all these things. And that's why we're continuing to try and conduct these rigorous analyses that in itself should be evidential of the necessity for really looking at this and treating it seriously. So I'll be doing that. Uh, last week, we get, we took a little repast from UAP and did an archaeology episode. It's good to get those in there every now and then. Uh, but in the weeks ahead, you can also look forward to uh, hearing more about this big project that the two of you were an instrumental part of, one of the first official interviews and cases, which is in the database that I'm building. You, too, your sighting is in there. and, and yeah, it's I'm I'm super excited about that. And the fact that Chris Mellon was interested in our case, uh, it just, it, it kind of blows my mind, honestly. Well, again, but here we are. <laughs> we're all in this together. And, uh, and I applaud you guys for coming forward and, and again, seeing something and saying something. It's obviously put you on this path. I applaud people like Chris Mellon for being down to earth and, and being willing to help share the data, you know, and David Marler and, and a lot of my colleagues, you know, in that area who have been at this for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, in the, in the weeks ahead, I'll be formally announcing this UAP project and, uh, you know, what we intend to do and how we hope to try and on the civilian side, move this ball forward, get it on down the court a little bit. But, yeah, lots to look forward to. And again, folks can follow me online at MicahHanks.com. That's just my name.com. 
And then also you can also grab me at uh, thedebrief.org. My team and I are offering reporting on science, technology, all kinds of things. But when there's UAP news breaking, we'll be covering that too. Yeah. And, you know, Diane Boss says it perfectly here. Micah, thanks for being on Wayne and Michelle's show with a thumbs up. So thank you, Diane. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you very much, Micah, for coming on, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon, and uh, we're going to go ahead and call it a night. Everybody check out Micah Hanks. Just Google it, you know, like everything else. Just Google it. Get to his his website. Get to his program. It's amazing. Uh, Fantastic knowledge. So, Micah, thank you very much for coming on tonight. Thank you, Michelle and Wayne, both you guys. You're great friends. Always great to talk with you. All right. We'll talk soon. Have a great night, Micah. Good night, guys. We'll see you. Night. All right. Well, Michelle, (laughs) this was a show to end all shows. I think we can quit now at this point. Well, and I think that you (laughs) need to remember to email Micah your prediction about Oh, you know, a little bit of data mining that you did. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for. uh, I know. Leave everybody with that. I know. Right. Testing a theory, folks. Testing a theory. Oh, man. Yeah. I I will forget because I'm on sinus meds and everything else. But, you know, Michigan, pure Michigan, we try to kill you. I'm just on being up at 4.30 in the morning. Well, there's that, too. <laughs> oh now. Hey, look, everybody in chat. We got Janine Baumbeck. Balm- We've got Straw Dog. we got Rick Davis still here. Diane Boss. we got Stars and Night Vision. Man, thanks for hanging out on this long one tonight. We are so happy you guys came to hang out yeah. with us night everyone have an awesome night everybody and remember keep your eyes to that sky we'll see y'all soon you have been listening to the michigan ufo sightings and paranormal encounters podcast You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.